Well, I thought that, uh, that for our first Sunday back in person, it would be fun to talk about one of the most mind-blowing and provocative and scandalous aspects of the Christian faith. How does that sound? You guys good for that? Does that sound? Sound good? Yeah, the topic we are about to dive into for the next little while is so unsettling and so risky that we often hesitate to teach about it, at least with any real level of depth. And when we do talk about it, we tend to give warnings and disclaimers. It's not something that we're terribly comfortable letting our kids know about. In fact, I'm actually living proof of this. Okay, when I was a kid, I went to my fair share of Uh, church services, and I went to kids' programs and Christian summer camps and these kinds of things, but nobody ever really explained this part of Christianity to me. So much so that when I finally had someone tell me about it when I was a teenager, I couldn't couldn't believe it. I was blown away, And, and in fact, I wasn't actually sure whether I was really allowed to believe it or not. I set up meetings with every pastor and Christian leader that I knew, and I asked them, like, is this really true? Is this true? Am I, is, this, do, is this what we believe? And when they would say yes, I would be like, how come no one told me? Like, do you understand what this means? And I know in my life, as I started to embrace it as something that really is true, that's part of this gospel that we believe in together, it changed everything for me. So this is what what we're going to talk about. Are you ready? We're going to talk about grace. Now, I recognize that grace probably isn't the first thing that comes to mind for a lot of you when you think about the more provocative uh, topics in Scripture. And I know that we toss around the word grace an awful lot. But grace can be one of those words that we get really used to hearing but we don't always grasp the fullness of what it really means. It can be something that we talk about a lot without really thinking through its implications. It can be one of those theological concepts that we agree with cognitively, but that we don't really actually let ourselves fully experience. And as we spend time talking about this topic of grace, I think it's going to become clear why it really is so risky and such a challenge for us to embrace as being true. And at the same time, why it's the only foundation that we can build our faith on as followers of Jesus. Because it's the very thing that makes the good news so ridiculously good. And there's two really key reasons why I think that this is an important topic for us to talk about in the church right now. The first reason is very, very simply this. Grace is central to the gospel. Okay, it's central to the gospel. Whether you're looking at the life of Christ, the way he lived, the things he taught, how he interacted with people, or whether you're focusing on his death and resurrection and the way that that was understood by his followers, or whether you're looking at the letters that were written by Paul and the early apostles to guide and correct and encourage the the first churches, grace is at the core of all of it. The entire New Testament is rooted in this message of God's grace and the way that it broke into the world through Jesus Christ and changed 
everything. For the past two years, we've been in this season where we haven't been able to do church the way that we got really used to doing church. And if you've been tracking with us here at Evergreen throughout that time, you know that one of the things that we've been trying to be really intentional about is paying attention to what God is saying to his people in the midst of all of the chaos and crisis and disorientation. Paying attention to what he's calling the church to repent of, to let go of, and then to step out into. Because here's the thing, God wasn't panicking in March 2020 when church buildings had to close. He wasn't. He wasn't concerned that the gospel was going to lose its power or that the church was going to die or that the Holy Spirit was going to be out of work and wouldn't know what to do with people now that they weren't able to gather together in the same building on Sunday mornings. Do you know what Jesus told Peter? Jesus told Peter that the powers of hell would never be able to conquer the church. So I don't think that God was panicking when we had to take things online. The problem is that we're like monkeys. Really. Now, I've told you before about this technique that they used to catch monkeys in South America. Some of you maybe uh, have forgotten about it or or weren't here, so I'm just going to remind you just in case. What they do in South America if they want to catch monkeys is they uh, drill a small hole into a coconut. And then they empty it out, and they put a little bit of sweet rice inside of the coconut. And then they tie it to a tree, and they wait. And apparently, uh, monkeys love sweet rice. They, like, go bananas for the stuff. Get it? Monkeys go bananas. (laughs) So they love sweet rice. And so sure enough, before too long, a monkey will come along, and they'll squeeze his little monkey hand into the hole, and they will grab that sticky rice. But here's the trick. The hole is too small for the monkey to get its hand back out when it's in a fist. Okay, now you see where this is going. The monkey will twist and pull, and it will do everything it it can to get its fist out of the coconut, but there's one thing that it will not do. It won't open its hand and let go of the sticky rice. So it ends up trapped. Not because there wasn't a way out. Not because it didn't have options to be free. Simply because it wasn't willing to let go of what it was craving so badly. And it's easy for us to to see how that illustration works when we're talking about like uh, things like sin and addiction and things that really obviously kind of keep us in bondage. But sometimes the things that we hold onto aren't actually bad at all. Actually, sometimes the reason we hold on so tightly to things is because we've experienced them as being really good. Like the way we do church. And when all of our attention and energy is focused on holding on to the things that feel comfortable and familiar, we can miss out on the ways that God's calling us into something new. And as we head into this next season, we want to make sure that we don't just rush back to what feels familiar and comfortable uh, in the church. 
We don't want to fall into the trap of holding on to things because it's the way we've always done it. We want to have hands that are open and hearts that are willing into the beautiful things that God has for us next. And to do that, we need to have a really clear sense of what actually really does matter, of the things that we do need to hold on to, of the foundation that our faith is built on. Because when we do that, it's a whole lot easier to hold on uh, loosely to everything else. And as followers of Jesus, our lives are built on the foundation of grace, individually and together as a community. Everything flows out of that. And so as we move into this next season, it's critical that grace is our starting point. The second reason I think that grace is a really important topic for us right now is because our culture is currently experiencing what I would define as a crisis of grace. Okay, now I'm going to guess that I don't have to work too hard to convince you all of this. All you need to do is spend a few hot seconds on Facebook, right, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Everyone just seems so angry, right? Our world is so divided right now. We can like see someone's bumper sticker and think that we know all that we need to know about them. Like we all fall into this, right? The moment we find out someone's opinion about a hot topic, not going to mention any, I don't know if maybe you can think of some, I don't know. (laughs) The moment we find out who who someone voted for or a decision that they've made, we feel justified to put labels on them, to write them off, and to say horrible things about them. We've lost our ability to listen to people's stories. We've lost our ability to be curious about why people think the way they think and do the things they do. We've lost our ability to learn from each other and to make space for each other even when we don't agree and to find beauty in the ways that God has made each of us so unique. And it's tearing apart families and communities and it's tearing apart people. And do you know what should be happening in the world right now? The church should be the community of people showing the world that there's a different way to live. We should have political leaders knocking on the doors of churches saying, how are you pulling this off? How do you have such a diverse group of people getting along and loving each other and acting in humility towards one another? Can you teach us how to overcome this polarization that's destroying our communities? Can you imagine how powerful it would be if that was what was happening right now? How amazing, how powerful, what a sign and a wonder would that be? And now, of course... (laughs) We know that the situation we're in is a whole lot different, right? The church is just as divided, maybe even more divided than the world. But I've been finding a a whole lot of hope throughout the course of the past two years in a little passage from Matthew 13 that says that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And something starts out, looks really small, looks really insignificant, But when it's planted, it grows and it grows and it turns into something that's bigger than you could have ever imagined when you just looked at that little tiny seed. 
right? The church is big and messy, and we can't fix all of the ways that the gospel's been misrepresented in our world or control how other people interpret the Bible or what they're saying in the media. We don't have any control over those things, but what we can do is we can learn to be people who live in God's grace and then let it overflow to others in small, ordinary, mustard seed kind of ways at work and at school and in our families and in the church. And when we do that, I think we'll be amazed at the way that God uses those seemingly small and ordinary things to point others towards his kingdom in life-changing ways. So, grace. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about grace? The word has a few different meanings in English. We talk about uh, somebody having grace when they're really eloquent in how they move or how they speak. Grace can be a prayer that we say before meals to thank God for the food that we're about to eat. People are sometimes given a grace period, right, where they don't have to pay back any interest on, on a loan that they've taken out. But what does scripture mean when it talks about God's grace? In the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul talks about God's grace, he doesn't actually use a fancy theological word at all. Most of the time, he actually uses the Greek word that just very simply means gift. Now, what is it that makes a gift a gift? A gift is something that doesn't need to be earned, and it doesn't need to be paid back. If Doug gave me a gift after the service today, and fingers crossed, got a birthday coming up, Doug. <laughs> he gave me a gift, and I opened it up, and I told him how much I loved it, and I thanked him for his generosity, and then he handed me a receipt, and he uh, gave me his email address, and he just asked that I reimburse him through e-transfer by the end of the week, then it wouldn't be a gift, would it? It would be an unsolicited expense. When you go to work every day and you put your blood and your sweat and your tears into doing your job and doing it well and then payday finally rolls around, your employer doesn't put a nice little bow on your pay stub, right? Or expect you to send a thank you card in the mail. It's your paycheck. You earned it, right? You deserve it. They owe it to you. A gift is something that doesn't need to be earned and doesn't need to be paid back. And scripture actually talks about different kinds of gifts that God pours into our lives when we're open to receive them, all using this, this very same word. So Dallas Willard uh, defines grace as this. I really like his definition. He says, grace is God acting in your life to accomplish what you can't accomplish on your own. Pretty good. God, God acting in your life to accomplish what you can't accomplish on your own. And of course, the most foundational gift that God gives us, and the one that we're going to focus our time on today, is the gift of salvation. The gift of having our sins forgiven through Jesus' death and resurrection and being put in right relationship with God. Something that we could never have accomplished on our own, but that God offers to each one of us as a gift. We're going to look at Ephesians uh, 2, verses 1 to 9 this morning. 
Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can open it up and turn to Ephesians. Ephesians is a letter that Paul wrote from, from uh, Ephesus, um, no, from prison, sorry, to a church in a place called Ephesus. And it, it's a beautiful book. It has a really, Paul has a really powerful way of walking people through the whole story of the gospel kind of in the first half, and then the second half of the book, he talks about how this gets worked out in our day-to-day lives. And so we're going to look at Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 9. It says this, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Paul never really sugarcoats the truth, does he? So he talks about this sinful nature that we have and the ways that we let ourselves be influenced by the powers of evil and this drive towards selfishness that we have that leads us towards death and destruction. And then he says this, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much. God is so what? Rich in mercy and he what? He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. There's that word, grace. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he has raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us. The incredible wealth of his what? Grace and what? Kindness. As shown in all he's done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his... God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. Do you understand how radical and counter-cultural and counterintuitive this gospel that Paul has just described really is? Did you catch that? Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. All of the religious systems that existed when Paul was writing this letter centered around what kind of behavior God or the gods required from humanity. In the Jewish uh, tradition, as many of you probably know, that kind of centered around the law. In the Old Testament, God gave his people 613 commandments that he called them to obey in order to live good and holy lives and to be in good relationship with him. And when people broke the commandments, there were sacrifices that they had to make in order to atone for their sins, right, to be forgiven. And in Jesus' time, we see all of the ways that the law had become skewed and the religious system had developed to become this thing that kind of policed the boundaries of who was in and who was out, of who was considered to be a success and who was considered to be a failure, of who they believed was experiencing God's blessing, and who 
they believed that God had rejected. There was a very clear rating scale that they used to determine who had value and who didn't. And people believed it, right? They, they lived accordingly. In the Greek and the Roman religions that existed at this time, in this culture, there were different gods that all kind of had different requirements from humanity, but everything really came down to the math, right? It always comes back to the math. There were things that people could do to earn the favor of the gods, and there were things that people could do that would make the gods angry. And if the gods were happy with you, then things would go well for you. And if the gods were angry with you, then people believed that they were being cursed. And then along comes Paul, telling these people that there's nothing they can do to earn God's favor, and there's nothing they can do to blow their chances of being on God's good side. You can see why I said that grace is so risky, right? What if the Christians go wild? It's risky stuff, right? Because through Jesus' death and resurrection, salvation has been given to us as a free gift of God's grace. All of a sudden, the people who were on the outside, who were considered to be failures, who believed that they were beyond hope, were invited to be made whole and holy by doing nothing more than putting their faith in Christ. And in our culture, we have our own systems that kind of determine who's good and who's bad and who has value and who doesn't, don't we? This starts getting drilled into us when we are really young. When we're kids, we get treats when we do our homework. And when we make faces at our siblings, we get sent to our room, right? In school, if we're smart, we get A's. We win awards. If we're not, we get D's. We get sent to the principal's office. When we're kids, we're told that there's a big jolly man in a red suit who watches us day and night and who brings presents to little girls who are good and and, uh, little boys who are good and who leaves coal for the little girls and boys who misbehave. And as we grow up, the truth is that things don't really change all that much. We just try to earn our approval and status in different ways, through our jobs, through financial success, by being smarter than other people, or stronger than other people, or funnier, or better looking, or whatever it might be for us. We spend our lives trying to earn approval and prove that we're worth something. So it's not hard to see why we struggle to really experience God's grace, even if we know what it is cognitively. We all kind of live our lives somewhere along this spectrum. I think we're going to have a slide that's going to pop up. There it is. Give you a second to just look at that. Some people live with a constant sense of shame and inadequacy, that follows them into every conversation and every situation that they find themselves in. They feel like they don't measure up. They feel like they're not enough. They feel like something's wrong with them. Maybe deep down they even believe that they're kind of beyond God's grace, like God couldn't possibly love them. Other people live with a constant sense of pride. They believe that they're smarter than other people, that they're stronger than other people, 
whatever the task might be, right? They think that they're the only ones in the room who have the ability to do it. They struggle to understand why everyone else has such a hard time keeping it together. If they're a Christian, they probably do a lot of things for God, but they probably don't need too much of God's help. Now, it's easy to see the differences between the two sides of this spectrum. But there's actually something really important that both of them have in common. Both sides of this spectrum are focused on us, on what we can do or what we can't do. Whether we're dealing with uh, shame and feelings of inadequacy or living in pride and with this sense of just self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, our attention is focused on us. The thing that makes grace so radical is it has nothing to do with our own abilities. Instead, it has everything to do with Jesus and what he did on the cross. Romans 3, verses 22 to 24 says, We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, and yet in his, in his what? Grace. In his grace. God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. In the kingdom of God, there is no rating scale. The metrics that we use to determine who has value and who doesn't don't apply here. None of us measure up on our own. We're all broken. We're all a mess. We all fall short. But God, in his love, sent Christ so that we could be made right with him. This isn't a Santa Claus kind of God. He doesn't have a scorecard that he keeps uh, track of when we're good and when we're bad and then hand out his gifts accordingly. He embraces us exactly as we are when we're at our best and when we're at our worst. Our job is just to trust him enough to lean back into that grace and to let his love transform us from the inside out. And yes, Jesus calls us to a certain way of living and no, grace doesn't give us a pass on that. And we're gonna talk more about transformation and how it takes place in our lives in the weeks ahead. But this morning, I really just want us to focus our hearts on this one foundational truth. That there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. You are held in his love by grace and grace alone. And often the, mis- the, the mistake I think we sometimes make uh, when we think about grace is we get the sense that grace is like the, the thing that earns us a ticket into heaven. You know, it, it's something that's offered uh, to us to forgive us for our sins when we come to Christ that first time. You know, but the truth is that grace is something so much bigger than that. I'm going to quote uh, Dallas Willard again. He says, grace is meant for us to live by. We can get the sense that as we mature in our faith, we actually need to depend on God's grace less and less. 
right? But that's not the case. Grace is meant for us to live by. It's not something that we ever grow out of. We never become less dependent on God's grace. Actually, as we open up more and more of our lives to Christ, I think we become more aware of just how dependent on God's grace we really are. Grace confronts our pride and our self-righteousness. It frees us from shame and guilt. And it opens up a whole new way of seeing the world and living our lives and interacting with God and with others. And my hope is that as we move forward into this next season, we will be a community of people that are learning to live in the rhythms of grace as we experience the fullness of it for ourselves and then extend it to the people around us. What a powerful testimony that would be in our divided world.